after Sandy's, after Mrs. Hodgson's wonderful story, I must begin by saying, once upon a time, we have a sermon. Here are some headlines that some of you may have read recently or in the past. John F. Kennedy was killed by the Central Intelligence Agency. Democrats and Hollywood celebrities are Satan-worshipping child abusers. Voting machines in 2020 use software created for Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez to steal votes. The moon is a hollow sphere, and the NASA moon landing was a hoax, perpetrated to increase funding for the space program. Barack Obama was born in Kenya and was never eligible to be the U.S. president. The Holocaust never happened, but was invented to garner sympathy and gain money for Jewish people. Princess Diana was killed by the British royal family to keep Prince Henry and Prince William from having a stepfather who was an Arab. Bill Gates was responsible for manufacturing the COVID-19 virus and used the COVID vaccine to inject microchips into people for tracking purposes. Alien life forms are being tested and undergoing experimentation at Area 51 in Roswell, New Mexico. There are many more statements like this that I could reference. Things like, the ruling class in the U.S. wants you to eat bugs. DIA is a hub for the Illuminati. Half lizard, half human reptilians run the U.S. government. COVID treatments cause COVID deaths. The Earth truly is flat. All of these are what we call conspiracy theories. Some of them may be harmless. Some of them may be very dangerous. Some may be true. But I don't believe any of them. There are people who have dedicated their lives, their reputations, and their fortunes to each of them. I believe that for Christians, they are distractions. If we could have this gentleman removed, it would probably help the rest of us focus because we have a distraction. We um, probably will be seeing more distractions in 2024 because AI and deep fakes are becoming much more believable. There are various kinds of distractions, some that even happen in church. They may be political, they may be social, they may be commercial, financial, or even religious. They draw our thoughts and our resources away from what is truly important or what may be to what may be sensational, but is essentially a wasted effort. They draw us away from our primary mission at the time, 
Unfortunately, we are easily distracted. In fact, we usually, not always, usually love distractions. Earlier this week, I was driving with my wife to my father's home in Redstone, Colorado, and we were planning to stop at the City Market grocery store in Carbondale on our way to get some last-minute groceries before we got to his house. As I drove past the City Market, my wife turned to me and said, what are you doing? I turned and noticed that I had missed my turn. I'm working on my sermon in my head about focusing, I said. There are times in our lives, however, when circumstances force us to truly focus on what is more important. I just read a quote this morning, actually, from Mike Greenfield, Brownfield, the relative of uh, Gordy and Jan Gates, from C.S. Lewis. It said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. Several years ago, I was flying to a board meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It was a small plane. There were probably about 15 seats in it. We did have a flight attendant, and there were two, a pilot and a co-pilot, up in the front, but it was so small that they had the door open so that we could hear and see what the pilot and the co-pilot were doing. As we approached the airport in Jackson Hole, I knew that it is in a deep valley with big rocky mountains surrounding it on all sides. As we approached, getting slower and slower and lower and lower, suddenly the engine kicked up and we took up again and started to circle. And I heard the pilot say to the co-pilot, I can't find the airport. Suddenly, my focus was super sharp, very keen. What is going on? Where are we going? And will we ever find the airport? Another time when I was very focused on what was going on and a little bit distracted, it's possible to be both, was as I sit in a do- sat in a doctor's office as he reviewed a CAT scan that had been done on my head, and he turned to me and said, you have a brain tumor. Focus on a brain tumor. Totally distracted from everything else he said for the rest of the meeting. I had a brain tumor. Quite a while ago, There were a number of mountain lion sightings in the neighborhood around where my father and mother lived. And as I was walking home from Redstone to their home, it was getting dark. And I was by myself, and I was a little concerned about being out by myself. I had about a mile left to go. And in the dark, as it got colder and darker, As I was walking along, suddenly something licked my left hand. 
Now, as you stop and think about it from here, what mountain lion would come up and lick somebody's hand? They would pounce on them and bite their neck and rip their head off or something. But as I walked and this thing licked my hand, I totally focused on what was going on around me. I turned down and it was a big black Labrador who, who was very friendly. But those kinds of things make you think, make you focus, make you wonder what is going on and am I in a life or death situation? My text today is from John. This is in, um, dedicated to Pastor Rote, who of course is the authority on John in this church, and we love him for it. Thank you, Daryl. I'm focusing on the chapters 13 through 17. Chapter 13 is where the disciples and Jesus have walked from the temple to the upper room. And as they walked, Jesus went first, and the disciples sort of fell back away from him because they were fighting. They were furious. They were angry with one another, and they were particularly angry with James and John because James and John's mother had just approached Jesus and asked him if James and John could have the highest seats in the government when Christ began his new kingdom. All of the other disciples wanted to be in the highest positions, and they were furious. They were arguing over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And they pulled back from Christ because they didn't want him to hear them arguing. Of course, Christ knew what they were doing. As they got to the upper room, the upper room was all prepared for the Passover service. The meal was laid out. There were towels and basins for washing the feet. Everything was ready, except there was no one there to wash the feet. Christ hesitated a while to watch to see what the disciples would do, and they all sat there doing nothing. He finally got up, took off his outer coat, put on the towel, got down, and began washing their feet. As he finished, he turned to them and said, You call me master, and that is right, but remember what I have done today. Remember that a master is truly a servant leader. You should be servant leaders. You need to learn to love one another as I have loved you. And he ends chapter 13 by talking about the new commandment that he has for his disciples. The new commandment is love each other as I have loved you. It really wasn't a new commandment. If you carefully read the Ten Commandments, you carefully read the Old Testament, this has been the commandment that God wants all of us to obey ever since the Ten Commandments, to love God, to love our fellow men, and to spread that love to those around us. As we move forward 
in these chapters, we see in John chapter 14, the question of who is God comes up. And Philip has the temerity to say, Jesus, show us the Father. They truly had gotten to the point now where they believed Christ was the Son of God, and they wanted to know more about what was the Father like. And Jesus answers in a way that Philip probably said, wait a minute, you didn't hear the question. Because Jesus answers and said, Philip, have I been with you this long, and you haven't seen the Father? You don't know what the Father is like? And Philip might have said, no, I'm not asking about you. We know you are loving and kind and healing and forgiving, but show us the Father. Later in these five verses, Christ talks about how there are many things that he wishes he could share with the disciples, but they're not ready for it. I wish instead of asking that question, they had gotten into some of the deeper questions. Questions such as, what about the flood? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about Achan and his family being stoned to death? What about Uzzah touching the ark and dropping dead? What about Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt? Is that really what God is like? I wish we could have heard Christ's answers because Christ, I believe, would have said, the God of the Old Testament, it was I who did all of those things. And they would have had a conversation as to how could it be possible that God did those apparently cruel things in the Old Testament and yet was so loving, so kind, so merciful and forgiving in the New Testament. Do we have a schizophrenic God? Or can we put these all together somehow and see the love of God in all of his activities with mankind. I wish they had asked that question. Jesus then goes on in, in chapter 17 to say something that I don't think we as a church truly have understood yet. I think in all of these chapters, there are bits and pieces that we have not totally focused on, that we have not totally understood. In John chapter 17, verse four, he says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. He's praying to God. He hadn't even gone to Gethsemane yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He had not died for our sins yet. And he says, I have finished the work you sent me to do. I have glorified your name on the earth. I have revealed the character of God, not only to the earth, but we Adventists have a bigger picture, to the whole universe, to the unfallen beings, the angels who also had questions about the character of God that had been raised by Satan in the great controversy. Christ had answered the questions. He had revealed the character of the Father. And yet sometimes we still drive a wedge between the Father and the Son as we look at who is truly loving, who is kind, who is merciful, who is forgiving. He says, if you have seen me, in John 14, he said, if you have seen me, you have also seen the Father. Ellen White goes a step further and says, if God the Father had come 
to this earth and veiled his glory and lived here among us, instead of Jesus, history wouldn't have been any different because when we see Christ, it is just like seeing a picture of God. That was one of the reasons. That's what Christ said, I've finished my work. I've shown the universe what the character of God is all about. In chapter 16, we also miss something that I think we as an Adventist church have had some problems with. John 16, verses 25 to 29, he's talking about, let me plainly tell you something. I'm not going to use metaphors. I'm not going to use figures of speech. I'm going to tell you something plainly. And then he goes on and says something that is contrary to some Adventist beliefs that I was raised with. He says, I won't intercede with the Father for you. I won't pray the Father for you. And he goes on to say why. Because the Father himself loves you. You don't need Christ to go to the Father and beg for your forgiveness or to beg to answer your prayers. The Father himself loves you. Again, we've driven a wedge sometimes between the two, and there is no wedge between the Father and the Son. The disciples act like they really understand. They say, oh, now you're telling us something plain. We understand. They didn't stop and ask the question, then what about the sacrificial system? What about this whole system of priests that was put into place? Why do we have all of that? And Christ could have said, because at the foot of Mount Sinai, you were so afraid of the glory of God, you begged for somebody between. If you remember the story, Moses said, you don't need to be afraid. And they said, if we ever see the glory of God, it will kill us. You go and talk to him, Moses. You come between. And after that, the whole system was put together with somebody between, a priest between. Christ here in John 16, 26 says, we didn't need to have that. It was for you that we put that in place. It was an emergency measure. I wish they had asked more questions. In John 15, they finally finish the meal. Judas has left. It's just the 11 in Christ now. They finish the meal. They get up and they walk out. And as they are walking out of the, the upper room and down to the Garden of Gethsemane, they see a vine, a grapevine. And Christ uses this as an example. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. A branch that doesn't produce is cut off and thrown in the fire. But if you abide in me, John 15, is all about abiding in Christ, abiding with him. If you abide in me, you will produce fruit. He doesn't focus on go produce fruit. That's a distraction. He, focus on, he focuses on abide in me. That is where the work should be done. Abide in me as I abide in my Father. As we go down in chapter 15, it tells us how we abide. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And this is my commandment. He says it again, that you love one another as I have loved you. I won't ask you right now to look to your left and look to your right or look around you, but there are some people that are really hard to love. I find it even sometimes in my family. It's hard to love. I think sometimes we put the wrong definition on the word love. The love definition that I like the best is one that Dr. Scott Peck, M. Scott Peck, wrote. He says, love is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling and not just to feel good about being around somebody. But it is the will to extend one's self for the purpose of nurturing either one's own or another's spiritual growth. It's an active working for your own spiritual growth or the spiritual growth of somebody else. It's not an emotion. It's the action. It's the will to help somebody else grow spiritually. And if we could focus on that, perhaps we could love each other a little better. Christ also says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, because you love one another. In fact, if you don't show love to one another, the world has every right to say, Christ never came. So here Christ is trying to focus the disciples trying to get them away from worrying about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, a kingdom that he wasn't even going to set up here on earth, trying to get them to focus on loving one another so that they would be able to show the world that they were his disciples and to give proof that God actually had come and lived among human beings. This is the focus of John 13 through 17. He then spends a little time with them talking about some troublesome things. Again, as a child, this was the focus I got quite often, was there's going to be trouble in the world. I'm going to be thrown in a dungeon in the bottom of some cathedral. I'm going to be put on the rack. I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be persecuted. Christ says, the world does not love you just as it doesn't love me. If they have persecuted me, your leader, they will persecute you also. There will be troubles. There are going to be things that will come that will be hard to live with. But then as our text for today says, he says, with those troubles, don't worry about it. Focus, I have overcome the world. If we are abiding in Christ, if we are living in Christ, if we have given our lives to Christ and have spent our time focusing on Him, we won't need to worry about what happens to us as far as trouble in the world because He has overcome. It is a law of human nature that you become like the one you worship and admire. If you think back about people that you have admired in your life,
When I was a kid, I grew my hair to look like the Beatles. I wanted to be like the Beatles. I admired them, and I became like the Beatles in some ways. I've had teachers that I have admired, and I tried to model my life after teachers, after the mentors in my life. I've even had pastors who I admired and tried to model my life after. But the focus here is not to be looking at other people. It is to be looking at Christ. And as we move into the next year, as we move into 2024, with all the troubles it's going to bring, we know that because it's an election year, and election years are always troublesome. As we move into that, our focus needs to be on Christ. And the more we study about Christ, the more we learn to admire Christ and his character, we will become, it's a law, we will become more and more like Christ. We will learn how to love those people who really aren't likable sometimes because we're focused on wanting them to grow spiritually. We're focused on our family members who may need to see a better picture of Christ, a better picture of the character of God in our lives. And as we focus on Christ, as he talked about the vine, it is a law that if you abide in the vine, you will have fruit. Don't focus on the fruit. Focus on the abiding. In John chapter 17, toward the end here of this this section in John, in Christ's prayer, he begins by praying for himself. He knows what he is about ready to go through. He is about ready to walk down to Gethsemane, where for all practical purposes, he died there as well as on the cross. Nobody touched him, nobody persecuted him, but he fell as if he were dead as the separation of the Father from him led to that destructive uh, relationship as he was treated as if he was sin, even though he knew no sin. He knew he was ready to go, was going to go through this, and he begins praying for himself. In the garden, he also prays, take this away from me if it's possible, but not my will, but yours be done. He then moves on to pray for his disciples, and what a bunch of people these 11 were. They were so slow to understand, slow hard of hearing, so slow to figure out what Christ was trying to tell them. It took them three and a half years being with him, and then the period between that and when when Stephen was finally stoned and when the Holy Spirit came, it took them all that time all that time. How long have we been here? How long have we known about Christ? How long have we been able to read and study and figure out what he was trying to teach us? It's much longer than the time the disciples had with him. We are a stubborn and obnoxious bunch as well. And so he moves on in his prayer to pray for us, for us, for you and me, in person. He says, be with those who are led to me by the words of my disciples. And so as he prays for those, he says, I do not pray for these alone, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That we may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. God wants to have that same relationship that he had with his son with each one of us. Perhaps we've scattered our attention as individuals and a church over too many things. Perhaps we're too worried about publishing and schools and hospitals and, and making sure we have the right people who are preaching or the right people who are in certain positions instead of focusing on abiding in Christ. Perhaps our message has an uncertain sound. Perhaps even though we have gone around the world and we have, we are proud of how great our church has grown and how many countries we have entered, perhaps we haven't entered yet with the true good news. The good news that when you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father, that God is just as loving, just as kind, just as merciful, just as forgiving as his son. Golf is a very complex sport. When you golf, you first have to address the ball. You have to approach the ball. You have to look at where the ball is and where the green is. You want the ball to go to the green and eventually into the cup that is in the green. You have to get your feet in the right position as you approach the ball and the right distance from the ball. You have to have your weight on one leg and then as you move through your swing, you have to move it to the other leg. Your arm needs to be straight and stiff, but not too straight and too stiff. The grip that you have on your club needs to be exactly right. Your eye needs to be focused on the ball. And as you focus, you then slowly begin your backswing. And you must again move your weight, but keep your eye on the ball. And you slowly move into your backswing, and then you quickly move forward, keeping your eye on the ball. Did you see what I did? I tried to follow the ball with my eye. Keeping your ball as you hit the ball, and then the ball goes into the hole, theoretically. <laughs> Kerry Middlecoff was a dentist who gave up dentistry and went as, in as a professional golfer and did very well as a professional golfer. He studied carefully all of the things you have to do to hit the ball, to play the game of golf, and wrote a book about it. He figured out that you have one-fifth of a second to get all of those things together correctly as you hit the ball to be successful in having the ball where you want it to go. One-fifth of a second. It's too much. You cannot concentrate on the hundreds of things you have to do within one-fifth of a second. And so he came to a conclusion that what you need to do is concentrate on the green. Concentrate on where the ball is going. You need to learn all those other things, but your concentration has to be on the green. And if you concentrate on the green, you have a much greater chance 
of being successful. As we move into the next year, as we move into 2024, again, I'm like Mrs. Hodgson. I've found that making New Year's resolutions is not a success for me. But as we move into the new year, I would ask you to do several things. Focus on Jesus. Abide in Jesus' love. Love one another as he has loved us and concentrate on the green where we're going.